This podcast is for grown-ups only. Some of the content may not be appropriate for little ears like mine. You, you start shooting heroin. How bad did that habit get? Two bundles a day, living in one of the motels up on 30. As they're removing me from the house, um, I was apparently kicking at them. I remember spitting at them. Welcome to Diakonos, Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver, and we have a really, really great guest on this episode. Seven years ago, Alex Sumansky was addicted to heroin, and her life was spiraling out of control. This culminated with an arrest and jail time which God used to get her attention and radically change her life. She sat down with Lauren and I recently and shared her incredible story. And on this episode, you'll hear part one of that conversation with her. Before that, I wanted to give a shout out to Luciano's Woodworking. I got his Diakonasa Cops Calling plaque up on the wall, and it really does make the studio space in our basement look a bit more official. He did a great job with it. And if you're interested in, in him doing a project for you, make sure you check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. I also wanted to update a story I commented on during episode 23, uh, my part two with retired trooper Jason Loudermilk. At the end of that episode, I commented about Portland PD standing by and doing nothing. I mean, absolutely nothing. While two groups went to war in the street and how Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler thought that this was a great idea. Well, I'm happy to report he recently admitted that his hands-off approach was, quote, not the right strategy, and he took responsibility for that very bad decision. He said that Portland was still, quote, trying to find the right recipe for handling the riots, and that he believed the solution lies somewhere between, quote, overwhelming police presence and restrained law enforcement, end quote. This all comes after Mayor Wheeler felt some pressure for his very bad plan and saw local residents claiming that they felt terrorized and abandoned. Well, no kidding. Of course they did. And I'm glad they pushed back against this ridiculous response by Portland PD. In the foxnews.com article I read about this, Mayor Ted Wheeler uh, was also quoted as saying, quote, Portland is unique and that we seem to be ground zero for alt-right groups to come into our town because they know they'll get a response, and they do, end quote. I would like to give Mayor Ted, Ted Wheeler props for taking responsibility for the botched response at the uh, latest riotous situation. However, I'd like to dissect the last quote from him. First, it's not just alt-right groups that are coming to Portland. I mean, BLM completely crushed Portland last year, and they aren't alt-right. I would also say that all fringe groups that wish to do harm and destruction are drawn to Portland, and he's right that they are drawn there because they know they will get a response. And that response is, well, not much of anything. And as long as your response is not much of anything, you'll continue to have these problems. We see this all over the country. I recently talked to an officer uh, who worked for an agency in North Carolina who they basically were told to stand down until the riotous crowd started shooting at them back in 2020. Then they finally decided to do something about it. 
So this is happening across the country. We see, we see this stand down idea not working. So I have a possible recipe that may help mayors like Ted Wheeler out. Uh, and, and that's this. Absolutely crush these idiots. Crush them. Arrest those driving the bad criminal acts. I'm talking about your main actors, your main players that are driving the criminal acts. Pick them out, identify them, and crush them and arrest them. And then ask judges to place high bail on each one, which holds them in jail and gets them off the street. And then find them guilty and hold them accountable instead of just giving them a slap on the wrist. It's really not rocket science. It's not even a recipe, really. It's just common sense police work. Speaking of great ideas, I'd like to suggest you follow through on your great idea of becoming a Diakonos patron. I know there are some of you out there who have thought about it. So listen, you can become a patron for as little as $3 per month. Each patron tier has increasing perks with the $10 plus per month receiving the most perks, including being able to engage in live episodes, our next one of which will be probably the beginning of December. We also have a prize drawing coming up with the winner to be announced during that live episode in December. And listen, even the $3 per month patron is is entered into that patron prize prize drawing. So go to diakonosacc.podbean.com to get more details and become a patron of the podcast. All right, let's get to part one of this conversation with Alex. At the end of the episode, I'll have cue the dip winner from uh, 9-11 and some thoughts on finishing well. My guest on this episode is Alex Szymanski. Alex goes to our church uh, with Lauren and I, and she has an amazing story and testimony of God's work in her life. Her addiction to heroin carried consequences that ultimately caused her to uh, get arrested, but God used that consequence to begin a work in her life, bringing her to this moment uh, where she has over seven years of sobriety and is a guest on uh, Diakonosic Cops Calling. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This is pretty cool. I, I don't even know the full extent of your story, like we were saying before we came online here, uh, but I do remember... I don't even know how long ago it was, within the last couple years, I I had a chance to speak briefly with you in the lobby of the church, of our church, and just heard a little bit about your testimony, and it was super, super uh, encouraging to me. And then as I transitioned out of law enforcement and had this crazy idea to start this podcast, I, uh, and, and Lauren's over there laughing um, at me, but as I as I transitioned into into this uh, this podcast, I had this idea of a mental list of people on there, and you were one of the people that I always thought oh, it would be kind of cool to have Alex on and just hear a little bit more of her story. And uh, I talked to Lauren about it. Say hi, Lauren. Hey, everybody. So and and uh, yeah, so we were like, yeah, let's have her on. Let's talk to her. Let's let's hear her testimony if she's willing to come on. And I reached out to you, and you were. And so I appreciate you being willing to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's just dive right into it. I think, you know, sometimes I, I uh, mess around at the beginning and have all this small talk and then I listen <laughs> to it and I hate small talk. Um, and I'm like, why don't I just be myself and ask the hard questions right up front? So I think the first, the first question I would have is, is how were you, how were you introduced to heroin? How did, what happened uh, throughout your life that, that led you to be introduced to heroin and, and get addicted to it? Well, so I, the first time I did heroin, I was 16. 
Okay. Um, I was already like I had smoked pot, like I was a big pothead at the time. Um, I my dad was a single dad at the time, uh, and he's a truck driver, so there wasn't a ton of like guidance or like anybody at home to like enforce rules really. Um, so I kinda I got away with a lot. And so I was, you know, like in like my sin. Oh, by the way, this is important to the rest of the story. Yeah. I had heard the gospel and would have considered myself a believer before I ever touched a drug in my entire life. I was 13 years old. Now, whether or not I had actually come to saving faith in Christ at that point, I mean, they some people say like you have to have that moment and like I have a moment when I absolutely know for sure that I was saved by that moment, but I I mean I can't say exactly when it happened. But Okay. All that to say. Um, so I was 16. Uh, my pot dealer, I was like, I should definitely date him. Like, I definitely <laughs> should. I will get free weed. This will be great. I also had already done a number of drugs. I had already done um, coke, crack. Um, I did a lot of cough medicine. Like, I would, I actually, my first arrest was I was 14 and I stole cough medicine from wise market i am not allowed at wise market anymore really um yeah they said for the rest of your life they're like now that you signed this paper i will tell you that that you just signed away your rights to come to wise market for the in the whole nation for the rest of your life and i was like okay um but yeah um that was something but yeah so crack coke cough medicine i had done shrooms once i had done acid once because when you're a little you know a, a a young teenage girl in like the Ephrata area it's hard to get a hold of like real drugs that are fun but lots of people are running around with the scary stuff so most of my experience was with um I smoked mostly weed and I had done coke a couple times and I had smoked crack a couple times I didn't love crack never never loved crack but okay anyway so um, started dating my pot dealer and he was already a patient. He was 21. He was already a patient at the methadone clinic because he had already had an issue with heroin. Him and his mom kind of like had the like toxic drug addict relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, they had used together. Then their source of heroin had dried up and they both got on methadone. Um, so I'm hanging out with this guy. It's super fun. Like, I think it's really cool because I'm 16 and I'm running away from home. And like, they're letting me like stay there, like just and I wouldn't go to school. And it was a mess. My dad paid lots of truancy fines. Like it was a mess. Um, and his mom was having him sell her Dilaudid pills. OK. That she got for her back. OK. I actually have never heard of that. That. Go ahead. It's a pain medication. I'm assuming. Yeah, it's okay. a pretty it's a pretty strong opiate. Okay. Um, and he like gave me some because he was like, you know, gonna impress his cool new girlfriend. Like, here, have some pills. Like, this is awesome. And I didn't know what they were. I didn't understand. I didn't know what an opiate was. I didn't know. I didn't understand, but I did understand that when I snorted these pills, it felt amazing. So much so that I brought them home, like the ones that he had given me, and I made sure to ration them out so that I had enough for every morning before I went to school. Because I was like, these are amazing. Like, this is great. Um, And so that was how 
I got introduced to opiates. And then he, um, one morning he missed the bus to the methadone clinic. Um, and he pulled out a syringe and he pulled out one of these pills and he was like, I'm going to shoot this up. Do you want to? And he had already told me about how, like, of course, like terrible, but like amazing, like shooting up was and like what that was like. And so I was like, yeah. And so he shot me up with, um, this pill. And from that moment, the moment it hit my brain, my first thought was, this is going to be a problem. Like, really? this is going to be a problem because mm. this is amazing. And yeah, um, I instantly knew there was going to be an issue there. And then gradually, um, I don't know, one day we were hanging out and he went out and bought some heroin. And I remember he brought the bag back and I was like, what is that? He was like, it's heroin. And I was like, but there's nothing in it. Because like right. in a heroin bag, there's almost nothing. It looks like there's nothing in it. But, right. Yeah. But what's in it is is so addictive. Mm-hmm. How many like in your in your group of of friends were all of them doing drugs? Like were you pretty much just hanging out with people who were who were doing some level of u- using using drugs? Uh, at that point, yes. Um, I I moved to Lancaster County from Long Island, New York, when I was um, going into eighth grade. I was a year young because the cutoff dates are different. So I was 13 or I had just turned 13. And at first I just started hanging out with normal, kid, normal kids. I never thought about drugs or alcohol at all. In fact, um, like my mom had been in and out of sobriety and had an alcohol problem for my whole life. And so because of that, um, there was like different custody things. And like we mostly didn't live with my mom for most of my childhood because of that. And I understood mommy's sick. Mommy loves you. Mommy can't have you live with her because she drinks too much. And when she drinks, bad things happen. And okay, absolutely. You know, that was my understanding of that. So I had no desire to drink or do drugs, but um, I was a little overeager um, when I moved here, like to make friends. And I was really kind of annoying and a little obnoxious. I'm still a little obnoxious. Um, (laughs) No, I would uh, not say that. (laughs) Well, thanks. But um, and so the kids that I had originally started to try to hang out with, they like really rejected me. Um, And so I and then I tried out for the cheerleading squad and I didn't make it. And so I went home and I cut my long hair to my chin and dyed it black and started hanging out with some kids who like dress more alternatively, which is not necessarily a sign that they are doing drugs. Right. However, um, I wound up falling. The people who would eventually accept me the most were some kids who were like misfits from you know different kinds of like broken families and things and like they would just take me for who I was and I loved that but they also came from like long lines of drug addiction and um, alcohol abuse and so most of them were smoking pot Um, but actually the first time I smoked pot I went to a Christian youth thing and this girl who I went there with we left we slept over at some adult man's house and we smoked some weed and I didn't feel anything I just fell asleep okay so marijuana weed was the first thing you ever used 
And so, I've, you know, over the years, they've, they've said that weed is the gateway drug. And you, you don't hear that as much anymore. You hear most people say, no, it's not a gateway drug. What, what's your opinion on that? Do you, think, do you think if you smoke weed, you have a higher chance of, of doing harder stuff? Or is it not really that big of a deal? I would say, from my experience, yes, especially as a teenager. Um, I can't speak to adults smoking weed because, spoiler alert, I got sober before I even turned 21. Um, But you learn from smoking weed because it's less hardcore than some other drugs. Absolutely. That's they're not wrong about that. But you learn to mess with your brain chemicals for fun. So. Yes, like the fact that I had smoked weed and it changed my brain chemicals for fun definitely made it seem less um, scary, less of a jump, less of something to reach to, to do harder drugs later. Absolutely. And the cough medicine thing, were you mixing that with other stuff or you were just drinking it straight? So you've heard of robo-tripping. I I mean, I think I've heard of it at a different a different term Mm -hmm. it's you drink a whole bottle of robitussin and um or um there were some uh they would call them triple c's coracid and cold and cough and you could take like they would come they were like pills and they would come in these they still do they have them behind the counter now but they didn't back then um and they come in these sleeves of like eight pills a piece and if you take you know a certain amount of them um you start to what they would call tripping. In my experience, having done actual, um, like having actually tripped on acid and mushrooms, it kind of feels like a little bit like acid, but also that you're drunk. Like you're very like slurry and your motor function is affected. And right. Yeah. But yeah. What's so interesting just in this, the very beginning of this conversation is that as a police officer, you're talking about stuff that I actually have never heard of that I, I didn't even wow. like I knew like the, the um, you know, the abuse of cough medicine and, and mixing it with other things and all that um, was a thing. But uh, the pills you mentioned, I don't ever remember hearing that specific pill. Mm-hmm. I've, I've taken other opiate type pills off people and and some of this other stuff you're talking about. It's, it's just I don't think people realize how prevalent it is in our culture. And, and, uh, at times too, like in law enforcement, we're generally dealing with the harder stuff, like the cocaine, the crack, the heroin, um, the weed too. But, uh, that's also a lot more recognizable. It's a lot easier to prove in court because if someone has pills that are, you know, just that you can go into a store and buy without a prescription, how do you, how do you prove that they're using them illegally? There, there's really no way. Um, I also think it's interesting that you felt like you generally had like a a sense of control when you were using all these things until you shot, um, which you didn't actually shoot heroin. You shot that pill, but the moment you like everything else, yeah, you said you you did all these things, but the moment you shot that, your first thought was, this is going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting to me. You didn't have that feeling with anything else, acid, nothing else. No, no. And I think that just goes to show how powerful opiates are. They are so powerful and so addictive. 
um, and and so detrimental. Is it is it difficult for you to talk like so? We're I mean you're you're going into pretty uh, much detail about the things you were. Is it difficult for you to talk about now, or mm-hmm. it's like no reaction? It's like a past life that you're glad you're out of. Yes, it's like a past life that I'm glad I'm out of. Sometimes I look back and it's like. I don't even understand the logic I was using to make the decisions I made. So it feels like it was a different person. Um, also, like being in recovery, I have shared my story a lot. Um, being a believer, I've shared my testimony a lot. With being a believer with this kind of testimony, people ask about it. Um, so it's not, it's not even a thing. Well, you know thing, but a chicken yeah. wing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Because, yeah. I mean, like, honestly, when I was thinking about having you uh, on this episode, you know, it, it's one of those difficult things. I mean, you've, you've been sober now over seven years. Yes. That's and awesome. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and I'm like, well, that's a, that's a, a, a long time uh, to be sober, um, especially from heroin, because the... <laughs> The, 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 the cop side of me, the, uh, the, the guy who did the job for so long, I can't tell you how many people I came across who are like, oh, I'm, I'm sober. Oh, how long have you been sober? A week. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you know, you just are like, come on, you know? Um, and, uh, but, but still like having you on the episode, I was like, I don't, I don't want when I have someone like you on the episode to, for it to be difficult or for you to be like, for it to stir something up in you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been completely set free. Like it's not even a thought in my mind. Like when I go through difficult things, like sometimes things cross my mind, not like drinking or using though. Like sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm going to make a bad decision, even though I'm not. Like it's the kinds of things that sometimes we, our first thought is when we're going through a trial of some kind. Right. But that thought is never, I'm going to go do some heroin. Like that doesn't even, um, I wouldn't even be able to get heroin now. I don't that's, think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. I mean, it's yeah. a, it's really an amazing testimony um of God's faithfulness and his grace. And uh, you know, we'll we'll obviously hear more about that. How bad was your your habit at its worst? So you do all these things, you get you you start shooting heroin. How bad did that habit get? Two bundles a day living in one of the motels up on 30. Um, I had completely ruined all the relationships in my life, uh, from family to friends, to acquaintances, to people who owned motels who would realize like what I was up to and kick me out. Um, uh, yeah, the only people I would see were my dealers and people who were related to, um, the kind of life that I was living in a day that was it um and i was not eating very much i was living on tasty cakes and little debbies from like gas stations i wouldn't eat much because like heroin makes you not hungry well most hard drugs make you not hungry um but then sometimes i would smoke some weed and i'd eat an entire box of cosmic brownies um i was i was i ate those things like there was no tomorrow but um and that was the skinniest i ever was in my life who would have thought right um (laughs) 
Because <laughs> you all, all you care about is the drug. Uh, yes. Yep. And I'm definitely going to get into that a little bit more later because there's some interesting stuff on the science side, not an excuse for sin, but it's just some interesting things of how that works on your brain. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, I was lying. I wasn't allowed to holidays with my family. Um, I it was it was bad. So when I say for those of you who don't know, um, a bundle is 10 bags of heroin. One bag of heroin generally goes for about $10 or it did back then. I don't know what they're doing now. Um, but and then if you get a bundle, you can get it all, like if you buy it's like buy 10 get 20 bucks off right <laughs> um so i would go through yeah um between 160 to 200 dollars worth of heroin a day and then also had to pay for my hotel yeah and how were you making money to do that crimes okay <laughs> that's as far as i'm gonna go on that yeah. one um yeah. but crimes yeah. yeah um can you describe, I mean, you, you have here a little bit how heroin just destroys um, just relationships with your family and friends. Um, I guess one of the most disheartening things for me when I was on the job is dealing with people who were addicted to heroin, who literally, yeah, had burned all their bridges. They were stealing from their family. Um, and people who were addicted to heroin were the most deceptive people I was ever around. Like you could not believe anything they told you. Um, why, why is it like that? Is it just because it's so addictive or it also that the changing of your, your brain, like you were talking about? Well, um, it absolutely is like that. And I was not, I was definitely exactly like that. I stole lots of money from my dad and my sister and they're fully aware of it. And that's why they, my dad kicked me out was mostly to protect my sister. Um, she was a waitress and I was stealing her tips um, out of the uh, tip jar uh, that she kept up in, or her little drawer that she kept up in her room. And I always told myself I'd pay her back. When I got paid for my next paycheck for my job, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to put this back. I'm going to put it back. And I never did. But like I believed thoroughly in that moment that I was going to put that money back. Or I believed that my family couldn't possibly understand what I would be physically feeling if I was in withdrawal and that if they understood, they would want me to feel better. Wow. And would give me that like I had all these crazy like hoops I'd jump through in my head to justify my behavior. Um, talking about the brain stuff. So um, what hair and once again, I cannot stress this enough. Um, no brain chemistry thing uh, excuses sin and addiction is sin. However, um, to help those who have not like been through addiction themselves understand what's going on. Um, addiction, like I definitely with heroin and opiates, I think with some other drugs as well, but I'm not sh as clear because heroin was my thing. Mm -hmm. um, they hijack your limbic system. Uh, your limbic system is the part of your brain that rewards um, when you complete or perform behaviors that are essential for your life to continue. So eating, drinking, finding shelter, 
Interestingly enough, I saw um, on one site uh, they listed providing for your offspring as one of the things that your brain rewards with dopamine, which if we think about it and we just stop it there, that's amazing. That is incredible. God is amazing. Like that he would design us in such a way that we would highly, highly prioritize keeping ourselves alive. Right. As believers, a lot of times um, there's this idea that, um, that, or yeah, there's this idea that Christianity contradicts science or science contradicts Christianity and we need to be afraid and we do not. Science 100% of the time is it's the explanation of what God has done. Um, anyway, so if we look at that and we look at the limbic system, um, the when you do heroin, it also re- like causes your brain to release dopamine, but it's a way larger amount than is naturally possible with any of those behaviors. So now your brain associates that drug with being way more important than any other thing that it takes for you to survive. Wow. So of course, those crazy behaviors, like it's not excused, but it is explained. Right. I just... I- I want to ask Lauren, when you uh, take care of the kids, do you feel a release of dopamine? <laughs> I, I mean, that is fascinating. And I agree with you. Like, it's so cool. Like, our one son is super into dinosaurs. And so, you know, we have creation science books, like, for him to, right. you know, mm-hmm. along with the stuff he gets from the library. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, we talk about it. But it is, like, every time I talk to him about um, creation or animals or whatever, like, you're absolutely right. You're just like, Wow. God is amazing. And yeah, science is just how we explain what God has done. So I completely agree with you. It's, it just, it all points to, back to God and is so amazing. Um, and yeah, I was thinking about that. Like after a day of like momming, like <laughs> doing the dishes, buying groceries. I mean, I, I feel extremely satisfied. I feel like, yeah. you know, I mean, being a mom <laughs> and like, it is the most satisfying like job, quote unquote, I've ever had. Um, how do you feel after uh, coming home from a nine to five at, at Ellicott? I you feel I don't like... feel any dopamine rushes, I don't think. You got to get in touch with that. You just need to dig a little deeper. Yeah, I guess maybe. Um, yeah, I think the other interesting thing about that is that, you know, we're talking about science and, and how it, 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 uh, it perfectly coincides with creation and, and God and what he's created. Um, He is the creator of science. Uh, And it also speaks to how the enemy Mm -hmm. constantly Mm -hmm. tries to pervert that. Mm -hmm. So something that God created, dopamine, to be released in our bodies when we do good things and we we do positive things, he perverted with this this drug. um, and, And its effects are devastating. And everyone I talked to on the job that I arrested that was in a place where I could actually talk to them and ask them questions about mm-hmm. it. Um, every single one that I said, you know, what is it about heroin? Like, how does it make you feel? The most common response I got was it's better than sex. Mm-hmm. And then the, the, the second thing that uh, everyone always told me was the first time is the best time. And then you're always chasing that. You can never, you can never, unless you do more, like, mm-hmm. would you, would you, would you agree with like, you can never, get that first feeling and you're always chasing that or yes um yes however i will say when you get sober and then you relapse this is why so many people od 
is because when you detox and your tolerance goes back down to nothing and then you go okay i'm gonna try to chase that first time high again by doing a bunch of heroin um and overestimating your tolerance or not knowing like how strong the heroin was or whatever um it's it's the chasing of that high that makes people od is that they're yeah they're looking for that there had been probably a few times other than the first time where i was like whoa this is this is crazy but um based on the quality of yeah the product or the amount that i was doing depending um but yeah yeah um it absolutely that first time come in when you have i will say when you have no tolerance so that's the first time and every relapse unfortunately are the best times and so it starts off great and like in the beginning um opiates like when you think of somebody who's on heroin you think of somebody who's nodding out and drooling all over themselves which was my number one pastime um (laughs) if i woke up in a puddle of drool i was like this was a good day and it was like what like one time i woke up on my floor i shot up on my bed and i woke up on my floor hours later with the needle in my like holding the needle in my hand and it was bent and I woke up in this puddle of drool, like all my hair was like stuck to my face. It was really disgusting. And I got up and I just like, boop, like fixed the needle and made it straight again and just went to bed. And I was like, that was great. That means I was like super high and having a great time. Um, but completely passed out. Having yeah. a great time, but completely passed out. Yeah, exactly. Which is just insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah. Did you, did you personally ever overdose? I not to my knowledge. Okay. Um, that time that I mentioned that I woke up on the floor, I can say I never overdosed to where EMS had to be called or I had to be Narcan or anything like that. Okay. Um, that time I woke up on the floor. I mean, that's probably pretty close because it was several hours later. There was another time um, in the Lowe's parking lot in Reading. I was in somebody's truck and I like, saw like everything went white and they carried me back into the other guy's car and then i woke up later but Mm. so i mean is that an od if they don't have to narcan you i don't know i mean it depends on how you're defining overdose but no i never really overdosed in that way i saw someone overdose not in active addiction was actually at a recovery event and somebody was there from a recovery house who was trying to do the right thing but also was not trying to do the right thing and overdosed and actually somebody who had narcan on them came up and narcan this guy i watched this guy turn from flesh color to blue back to flesh color and we all stood around him and said the lord's prayer and he like breathed again and it was like i have goosebumps right now just like oh wow you know um yeah i don't know if he's sober now i don't know anything about him now yeah yeah when i when i came on the job narcan was was different narcan was always administered by ems Mm. and it was done with with a needle Mm -hmm. um and the first time i ever saw it never forget it i can still see it clear as like i will never forget it young maybe on the job i mean it was probably my first year on the job and we're down in this uh, dark, dank basement. Mm. This guy was dead. Mm-hmm. Like he was blue, mm-hmm. not breathing, dead. I was like, this guy's dead. And they gave this guy Narcan. And 
he sat up and started fighting with us. Mm-hmm. Like it would, the Narcan of today is completely different than the Narcan when I got on the job. The Narcan now, you can administer it with a up, you know, up the nose, a spray up the nose. Um, it's not as uh, a violent of a reaction. Mm-hmm. But yet, when I first got on the job, Narcan would bring people back from the dead and they would start fighting with you. Mm-hmm. And now, well, I'll get your opinion on this. And now, in my opinion, Narcan and how it's being used and the push for, EM, for, for law enforcement to have it has exasperated the problem. Hmm. Because in my career, what happened was that Narcan was so prevalent. Now police officers had it. It wasn't just an EMS thing. So police officers had it. Now, um, you know, your, your buddy could have it to bring you back to life if you overdosed. So you have this safety net. So what we started seeing is people pushing it farther and farther and farther because they're like, they'll bring me back. And then you'd bring them back and they'd be pissed at you for ruining their high. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so to me, I always kind of referred to it as enabling juice when they gave it to the police because it turned into this thing where we felt like people were abusing heroin even more, um, especially with the fentanyl being in it and stuff. People weren't as careful because they knew that the cops would get there fast enough to, to save them. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that or if you think you're just a cynical jerk. No, I don't think you're a cynical <laughs> jerk. I completely understand. Um, one thing I will say is that while it may seem that way, I also think that like when I was using the height of my addiction was late 2013 into 2014. We weren't really hearing the terms opioid epidemic at that point as much. It wasn't, um, I didn't know of anyone having Narcan except for EMS. I didn't even, I probably didn't even know what Narcan was. I was like, they OD and then the EMS comes and they bring you back. That's all I knew. And I, I remember one time I was going to do this like big shot of dope and I put 911 on my cell phone and I was like, guys, just hit call if I OD. And they'll find me because, you know, on the movies, I don't know if this is even how it works, but like I was like, yeah, in the movies, they can track your phone. Also, I was in the motel across the street from the police department. Um, So I was like, they'll be here in a second. Um, So, yeah. Um, But and that was before Narcan was prevalent. And I was like, whatever. So I think. You know, there's not that much thought being put into it, maybe. Right. But I also I was very reckless. I, you know, very, very classically like we see with drug addicts and alcoholics, we think we're invincible, especially when we're young. Um, I was the same way, um, which comes in later in my story when I eventually went to to prison. I was like, what? Me? No. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so. I don't know, maybe. Um, And I have heard that from other people who work with people who are just coming in off the streets, that that is happening more. Um, So, I mean, 
Yeah, I at one point did carry Narcan. There was a doctor in York, I guess, that had like an open prescription and you could just get it sent to you. And so I did carry it because I was around a lot of people in early recovery and I wanted to be ready. I was um, I have been involved in a 12 step program for my entire sobriety. And um, I was always afraid that at the place where we meet at, because there's a noon meeting there and there's an evening meeting there. And I was always afraid I was going to open that door and somebody from the noon meeting was going to be in there dead having OD'd. Because I used to shoot dope in that same bathroom. Wow. Um, yeah. So um, I was like scared of that. And so I started carrying Narcan for yeah. that reason. So, yeah. I mean, I don't have a super strong opinion on that. I mean, I definitely... It shows the heart of people sometimes when you see people like on Facebook, like, well, if insulin isn't free for diabetics, Narcan shouldn't be free for addicts. But like, it's not free. Um, and it's different. Like one's like a stabilizing medication. And yes, like, of course, if you called EMS because there was something happening with anyone, they would stabilize them. And all of those people have the ability to not go with EMS to the hospital and then EMS can't bill them is my understanding if the patient doesn't go to the hospital. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so difficult because mm -hmm. the police go to these calls, EMS goes to these calls and, uh, you know, the police may get there. They were Narcan them. They're back. EMS gets there. Um, you know, that Narcan interrupts that high, mm -hmm. but it's still very important that they go to the hospital because if that Narcan wears off, it could still be a problem. And, and, but then you have, you know, the people that don't want to go to the hospital. And then, so what it, it, it's, it's, it's just one of those difficult things in law enforcement because you can't force someone to go to the hospital, but if you're there and they don't want to go to the hospital and then you leave and they die, it's very easy to blame the police for that. And um, yeah, so I think mainly, like, I think I, you know, the cynical side of me, the side that, you know, working in the environment I did and the amount of overdoses I saw, it just it was so tiring to go sometimes to the same person mm. and Narcan them and bring them back um, just to do it again you know, the next week or, you know, find them dead, you know, the next week, um, you just start getting really hard into it. Like, mm -hmm. I'll be perfectly honest. You mm -hmm. just start getting hard into it and you start thinking less of you, you, you even call, you call them fiends. You call them dope fiends. I use that as a term of endearment, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's what the, you know, that, you know, that's, that's the attitude you get to them because you, you, so you, you, generally do not see anyone coming out of that lifestyle. You just deal with them over and over again. Mm -hmm. And usually when you're dealing with them, they're high and they're nasty. And they, you know, um, you're just like, don't feel like there's any hope for them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why your story is so encouraging to me. And when I heard it, um, was so encouraging to me because generally the police, we don't hear stories like that because no one calls us when they get clean. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, no one, no one picks up the phone and calls the cops and say, Hey, just so you know, I've been clean. Uh, thank you for, you know, whatever you did those three times you Narcan me. 
Um, and so hearing a story like yours is just super encouraging for me. And I hope it's encouraging for other officers that, that are, uh, that hear this episode. So ultimately, um, your addiction led to, um, an arrest, a stint in, in uh, prison in 2014. What happened, uh, that, that caused that to happen? What did you do? All right. So, and it's not hard to, I've told this part of the story a lot. It's just always like, like when I look back at myself, I don't understand. I just don't understand. And it was me and I don't understand. So we can't ever blame others for not understanding like the behavior, um, you know, but Yeah. yeah. So I, it was the height of my addiction. Um, I, had a situation happen that was so just like disgusting and made me just it made me not want to continue living the way that I was and like doing dope I didn't want to be physically addicted to this thing where I had to go through all kinds of shady ways of like getting money and always being afraid. Like if you see a cop car, like, oh my goodness, they're coming for me, you know? Um, That's the, yeah. But um, so I wanted to stop living that way. Like I just, I was like, I'm done with that. Um, But so Lancaster County gives, uh, county has this county funding for, for residents of the county to go to detox or rehab. They cover two detoxes. When I was, you know, ripping and running, they covered two detoxes a year and one full stint in rehab per fiscal year. So it rolls over in like June, July. Okay. Um, so I had already been to two detoxes and a rehab that year. So, and I didn't have health insurance. I was 19 and literally just being a heroin addict. (laughs) Like there was no insurance. Um, So I wanted to stop using, but I knew from having actually tried to quit cold turkey before, which led to me like passing out because I wasn't eating or drinking and I was, yeah, it was a mess. Um, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to quit cold turkey, um, whether you can't die from heroin withdrawal in and of itself. Um, But I knew I wouldn't continue to go through with it. Like eventually I would give in. Uh, So I was like, what do I do? But then I found out there was county funding for me to go on Suboxone maintenance. And I was like, well, I don't really want to be on Suboxone maintenance. I had seen, you know, my, at this, at that point, a long time ago ex-boyfriend on Suboxone or on methadone and had seen other people on Suboxone and their lives were just as crummy as you know that it just wasn't something that appealed to me however to be able to exist not constantly like committing crime um and without being able to actually detox i was like all right i mean i guess i'll do that there was county funding for me to get on suboxone maintenance so i did that um and like any you know good person who gets on suboxone maintenance uh you know that you can't opiates will not work in the same way if you try to take them once you have suboxone uh on once you have buprenorphine, which is the opiate, the opioid that is present in Suboxone on your uh, opiate receptors in your brain, um, 
it has a higher affinity for your opiate receptors than other um, opioids. So you can't really get high uh, off opiates. But then, of course, um, I, a bottle of Xanax made its way um, to me. And I had been casually like doing Xanax this entire time that I was doing heroin, but like it would just kind of come into my, like, oh, hey, here's a couple pills. Okay, cool, whatever. Like, and so occasionally I had blackouts because that's what happens. For those of you who don't know, Xanax is a benzodiazepine, which I will refer to sometimes as benzos throughout the rest of this. Um, and it acts in a very similar way to how alcohol acts on the brain. Um, in that it causes some very similar things. It causes you to slur your words. It causes um, like uh, decreased motor, motor functions, decreased inhibitions. But because it is a pill and it's not liquid that you have to drink a large amount of, you like the effect hits you a lot more quickly, kind of. You can take more of the substance in in a shorter and more efficient like way um so it's generally used in small quantities to treat uh panic attacks anxiety disorders that kind of thing um but it's big among people on methadone and suboxone because it's something that you can still get high on uh and it like depending on you know what you're dealing with um yeah it may not cause as many problems for you but it did for me um like a good addict over the course of might have been three days might have been a week i don't know i was blacked out for most of the time my i think it was two to three days i took 31 milligrams annexes someone gave me an entire bottle and i just kept taking them um, and I was just kept taking them like four at a time. Um, Jeez. yeah. And I remember bits and pieces over those couple of days. I remember watching the Godfather on TV. Um, I remember because I had dreams about the Godfather when I was in jail. <laughs> it was interesting. <laughs> but, um, I remember waking up at my dealer's house to his baby's mom smacking me in the face talking about that i was trying to steal her man and i had no i still don't know what that was about i have no idea what that was about like wow. i woke up to being smacked in the face and being thrown out of my dealer's house by an angry woman well and i say woman she was my age she was 20 he was in his and 40s. you don't even remember going there i rem i mean i was there a lot Okay. <laughs> it was kind of a place that <laughs> I frequented. Um, but I, and I think I had slept there the night before. Okay. But I have no idea why she, what I did. Right. Um, and that's very common. Um, just like how you hear about people drinking and blacking out. Okay. It's even more so, it happens more with benzodiazepines. I actually had dated someone, same guy, same pot dealer boyfriend guy from a long time ago. Um, 
he also used to take a lot of Ativan sometimes. And it was, um, he would get to this point where it was like trying to take care of someone who had like some sort of intellectual disability or something. Like he would just open the cabinets and just rip everything out of them and throw them on the floor and run in the next room and like run out the front door naked and like all kinds of crazy stuff. And he didn't know what was going on from moment to moment. Um, by the way, He's a believer, and he's been sober for as long as I have now. Wow. Oh, wow. Praise, Praise God. God. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. Amazing. Amazing story. I ran into him at a recovery wow. event, and we got to be like, hey, oh, my gosh, yeah. And he, yeah, that okay. was good. That's um, so that's a nice, nice story. Um, but we, but yeah, so I was familiar with kind of how that worked. Um, but so I remember going into Kmart in Ephrata and stealing a bunch of random stuff which was not ever my thing. I wasn't like, ooh, I'm going to be a klepto and steal stuff. But at this, I was like, I the mood struck me. Right. And <laughs> I, I, it was like a ring and like some moisturizer and like stupid oh. stuff. Um, I remember my mom had driven me there uh, because I asked her to probably. Um, and I, I broke a bottle in the parking lot and I told her I was going to kill myself. Um, like all kinds of weird stuff over a couple of days. Right. So it all culminates. Uh, I'm sitting on my mom's couch in her apartment, which at that point I had moved into, I did a brief stint in a detox before the Suboxone thing. And my mom let me move into her place and sleep on her couch. Right. So I'm sitting on my mom's couch and I had done a bunch of heroin. Some at some point I had stopped taking my Suboxone over these few days, okay. made my way to my dealer's house and d- done some heroin. Um, and I had some heroin and I was like, I was nodded out on my mom's couch. And um, she later told me, we've talked a lot about this, but my lips were turning blue. Um, and that would make sense with the opiates and the benzodiazepines, the way that they, they can really very quickly shut down your respiratory system, uh, the combination of the two. So she poked me and I reacted in a very similar way to people who have been Narcaned. I lost it. Okay. She, I was like, I was, I was not now and that was great. And why did you wake me up? And I freaked out and it came to blows. And we were like, I was screaming Um, and the neighbor called the police um, and I was trying to get dressed and leave because Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to get out of here. Like we just had this fight. I don't even want to be here. The cops might be coming. I don't know. And so I but then again, as I described before, trying to take care of someone who is on like drugs like that like like you can't even keep two thoughts together like like you know how sometimes you walk into a room and you forget why you did it right Uh, imagine everything you do you forget why you did it that's what it's like being on too much uh too much xanax but so i got as far as i had a tank top on and that was all when the cops showed up at the door and I answered the door with my tank top pulled around my waist and I was like can I go in the other room and put some pants on and they were like yeah of course uh because they're you know human beings (laughs) um and um I also in in my fit of rage with my mom I somehow became convinced that she had hidden my heroin from me so that I wouldn't do it 
but really I was sitting on it. Okay. Um, but uh, so miraculously, the moment I walked into the bedroom to go put my pants on, I remembered where my heroin was and it was in the bedroom. So I locked the door behind me and I grabbed my heroin and I went into the uh, adjacent bathroom and also locked that door and started trying to shoot up because get this in my head, they're not going to take me sober. (laughs) Sober is not a word that would have been used to describe me by any stretch of the imagination at that moment. I was off my rocker. Um, I had done many substances that day. Like I definitely drank too at some point. Like um, it was a mess. So you were just out of your mind. I was three sheets to the wind. I was completely blasted. Um, And then so uh, because of my comments earlier, either that day or the day before or something, um, about killing myself in the Kmart parking lot, my mom was concerned and she thought I was going to try to kill myself. And she communicated this to the officers who broke down the door. Um, and as they broke down the door to the bedroom, uh, they walked past and clearly saw my bag that I used to carry my paraphernalia around in. And I had hundreds of empty heroin bags just spilling out of it onto the floor. Because as a heroin addict, sometimes you save those because you can use a a razor blade or a credit card to scrape the residue off of them. And if you do it with enough of them, you can get high if you're in a in a bind and you're like gonna be sick. Um, so that's why I had saved so many. And so they break into the bathroom and I throw the needle into the bathtub to try to like like, oh, I don't have anything. <laughs> um, it didn't matter. They, they already, right. you know, it didn't matter. Um, and then this next part is very dumb. <laughs> uh, I decided that I was going to be dramatic. And I was like, well, if you're going to take me away, you're going to have to carry me. Um, so I did end up putting pants on at some point. Um, so I'm wearing jeans, a tank top, and that's it. No shoes, no nothing. It is. January 31st, 2014. Um, it's cold, you know, whatever. Um, and uh, as they're removing me from the house, um, I was apparently kicking at them. I remember spitting at them. Um, a lot of the rest of the night, I don't remember. Um, there are bits and pieces. Um, I remember being at the hospital for them to like clear me medically to go to jail, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I was like handcuffed and like shackled to the bed because I was freaking out and like they had to keep me in one place, you know? Um, I remember sitting in the, like, I remember hearing that my bail was set at $75,000 and I was like, what? That I woke up out of a blackout at that moment and they were like, the charges against you are really serious. I was like, what? I was like, am I going to get like attempted murder or something? Cause I beat up my mom. Like I was so, I had no right. idea what was going on. Um, I found out what I had actually been charged with when I was sitting in jail and someone read me the paper. Um, they, and it was, um, simple assault on my mom, resisting arrest, possession of drug paraphernalia and aggravated assault because I spat at the cop. Um, so now I'm a felon. Um, I, yeah, so that's how that went. Um, there's not a lot that I remember about the arrest except for that the cops were way nicer to me 
than they should have been. Like I was belligerent and I remember complaining that my handcuffs were too tight and they loosened them for me. And then I pulled my hand out of my handcuff and they politely asked me to put it back. And I was like, okay. And I put it back. <laughs> like I was expressing concerns about being afraid about going to jail and they were trying to like comfort me. Um, I, you know, like my goodness, right. like, and in the moment I didn't feel that way, but looking back, like right, I had, they, yeah. I deserved to be like slammed against the car and like, you know, all kinds of stuff. And they were way kinder than anything that I deserved. Good. Yeah. Good. That's a, that's a good word for police officers. Thank you for. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, Um, so I, the, the one thing I wanted to ask you is the, the empty baggies Mm -hmm. saw that all the time. Mm -hmm. Do do addicts ever actually try to do that? Because it seems like a good idea, but it seems like something that really never happens. If you get really sick, yes. Okay. Over the six months that, I mean, I was high for six months straight and wanted for nothing. Um, I always had money. I always had everything that I needed. But there had been times in the past when I still lived at home when I wasn't engaged in that level of um, like living every day just for addiction um mm-hmm. where i had been i had experienced withdrawal and it really really sucks and so i was like preparing for that i mean yeah. with the survival instincts again yeah. you know yeah yeah um the other the other really interesting thing about just that your arrest and that story that i think is is helpful for people is that those types of environments you know, police officers are going into those types of environments mm-hmm. all the time and dealing with people, like you said, you're, you're blasted out of your mind. You don't even really know what's going mm-hmm. on. You have bits and pieces, um, you know, and then you have a parent, uh, you have, it's, it's like walking into chaos mm-hmm. because as a police officer, you're, you're literally, you're walking into an, into something that has been going on for sometimes years and uh you don't you don't really know all the dynamics of what's going on and then you have all these like moving pieces you have you know there's been an assault but you also have this a mom who's concerned that her daughter might be trying to harm herself she's now locked in the bathroom you have drug paraphernalia everywhere it's like chaos and i guess I appreciate you telling the story because i think it just helps people better understand like the environment that you know, officers are working in every day um, to just maybe better understand like what they're trying to deal with and what they're trying to work through. And so I appreciate you saying like the officers actually, you know, treated you very, very decently. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I remember correctly, too, you was one of these officers. You Did you actually develop some sort of friendship with him then moving on from this where, where he was able to help you out? Or is that? not well kind of yeah i did end up forming like a you know a friendship with one of the officers but it was much later okay um yeah i um got so went to jail right um how long how long were you in only three weeks nothing crazy uh got released like unsecured bail ror type deal after my preliminary hearing okay um but 
And you never had to go back? You No. Okay. I, so what happened was they actually, um, they gave me 60 days of house arrest. Um, I could, yeah, I ended up doing that at a recovery house that I went to voluntarily because I knew it would look better. And it did. Um, but anyway, uh, much later, um, okay. I reached out to one of the, the, I reached out to the officers because I knew that I should. Um, and it, it hadn't crossed my mind for to actually take that step in that way for years because it just didn't. Right. Um, but at one point I became really convicted, like, <laughs> convicted. Um, I became really convicted <laughs> that I should, um, finish making some amends to people that I hadn't thought of originally when I made my list of people I had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Um, and the there was a woman uh, who was on there who it was, you know, I made amends to her and then then it was the cops. And I was like, like, I knew they would be great and wonderful and fine, probably. I knew they probably wouldn't be mad, really, or anything. But it's still like was a little like, okay, I have to, I have to do this. Like, and so what I did was I wrote them a letter to start off. I actually had to look up the Lancaster online article to find out the names of the officers who arrested me because <laughs> I had no idea. Right. Um, and so I, I did that and I wrote them a letter. Hey, uh, my name's Alex. You might not remember me. 2014, you arrested me and it saved my life. Um, because I've been sober ever since I went to jail, um, which I can talk a little bit about what happened there. But yeah, so I ended up uh, meeting up with the officers and uh, letting them know just how much they had, they, how much God had used them um, to change me. Turned out they were all three believers. Okay. Uh, which was really cool. That's cool. Yeah. So you, you actually met up with them mm -hmm. in person then? Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, That's yeah. That's a really cool thing for an officer to to have happen. Um, yeah. So you're you're in prison, and you you never used uh, since that since that time in prison. Mm -hmm. What happened when you're in there? Like what what? Yeah, what happened? I can't thank Alex enough for coming on and telling her story. You definitely don't want to miss part two with her next Tuesday. We've seen it from the front angle before, but not from this angle. About a week and a half ago, we remembered 9-11, and the audio you just heard was from that. A memory burned in many of our minds uh, as we watched the second plane uh, fly into the South Tower, and that's what you heard in that audio. This year marked the 20th anniversary of that day, and as I remembered it, I came across this week's Cue the Dip winner. He is NYPD Officer John W. Perry. As I was just looking at articles and watching video of 9-11 uh, about a week and a half ago, uh, while I was remembering it, I came across this incredible story of what Officer Perry did on that day. Officer Perry started with NYPD in 1993, and he was actually retiring on 
He was at headquarters handing in his retirement paperwork. And what he did in that moment was pick his badge back up off the counter and run the several blocks to the scene where he began to help rescue people before being killed by the collapse of the South Tower, uh, where he was last witnessed attempting to help a woman to safety. He is the only off-duty NYPD officer killed on 9-11. And and just a little bit more about Officer Perry, he is a graduate of NYU Law School, and he had an immigration law practice before he was ever even hired by NYPD. He could speak Spanish, Swedish, Russian, and Portuguese. He was a member of the New York State Guard. He was a board member of the New York Civil Liberties Union, strongly believing that the police should be protecting civil rights. He was born with a learning disability. According to his mother, uh, he could not recognize colors. He was unable to put letters together and make words or understand them, but he could memorize what people would tell him. And so right around the age of nine, something clicked in his mind and he started learning and he actually caught up with and surpassed his peers and uh, extremely brilliant um, person. I've I've seen video clips of him speaking, very well-spoken and obviously very, very intelligent. He also had a few roles on as an extra on some TV shows. And on 9-11, an estimated 25,000 people were saved by the NYPD and the uh, Fire Department of New York that day. Officer Perry sacrificed his life in the pursuit to save some of those lives. He had planned on handing in his retirement papers on 9-10, but he didn't get the paperwork together that day. And so that's why he was at headquarters on 9-11, handing in his retirement paperwork, and then rushing to the scene where he sacrificed his life uh, to save other people. Officer John Perry's sacrifice and his cue the dip moment is an example of someone finishing well. It should motivate and drive all those in law enforcement to do the same. Recently, I had a conversation, a sobering conversation, with an officer who was recalling several police officers we knew who didn't finish well. Poor decisions, alcohol abuse, adultery, criminal acts, laziness, poor leadership. The list goes on as to why some in law enforcement don't finish well. For sure, the stress of the job and the trauma it may cause play a role in some officers not finishing well. But just as we expect the general public to work through the bad things in their lives and do good despite those things, how much more should we as police officers do the same? And finishing well doesn't mean perfection. I know some officers who made poor decisions and faced consequences which brought about a different course in their lives where they started making better decisions. Officers who have shared with me some deep regrets, but who took their lumps and are trying to do the next right thing. Officers who finish well, actually people who finish well, do do many things to make that happen. They don't seek to preserve self, but instead seek to make things right. They take responsibility for wrong action and don't make excuses. They don't lie. They work hard. They make the right decisions, even when it's hard and even when it's going to hurt them. They stay humble. They serve the people around them. There's a whole host of of things that are done for people to finish well. The interesting part about this conversation that I had with this officer about those who finished well and those who hadn't finished well is that the ones he had personally listed as finishing well had one thing in common. All of them 
were followers of Jesus Christ. And I pointed that out to him. Now, in a worldly sense, many officers who don't share my faith have finished their careers well. But apart from God, you cannot finish life well. There are many verses about finishing well. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Philippians 3.14 I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And 1 Corinthians 9.24-27 Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. There have been times where I've seen officers talk about what they can't stand and who they can't stand. Disgusted by the decisions of criminals they engage with day in and day out. And yet, just as this 1 Corinthians passage states, they themselves become undisciplined and lose self-control, engaging in things they claim to hate, disqualifying themselves from having any clout or weight in the things they preach against. And just as the Philippians passage says, we can only press on for the goal and the prize and the upward call of God through Christ Jesus. Apart from that, we won't finish well. Apart from that, we won't kick up the dust in pursuit as we should.